sometimes you come to the front and you realize you forgot something. <laughs> then you walk out. Where's he going? <laughs> so today we come to the final chapter in the book of Jonah. We traveled a fair distance with Jonah, haven't we, over the past five weeks? First of all, we saw how he was called by God to preach against the wickedness of the city, the great city of Nineveh. And he turns and runs in the opposite direction. So God sends a great storm to bring him back, and Jonah ends up in the belly of the great fish, where he, maybe for the first time in a long time, acknowledges who God is. And God gives him a second chance. Last week we saw how the word of God came to Jonah a second time. And this time he obeys. He goes to Nineveh. And he walks through the city preaching a really short sermon. And no doubt to his amazement, and perhaps to theirs as well, the whole city turns from their evil ways and God does not destroy them. And that's where we pick up the story today at the beginning of Jonah chapter 4. Before we open our Bibles, let's pray. <coughs> Lord God, may the words of my mouth this morning and may the meditations of all of our hearts as we hear your word and as we reflect upon it, may they be not only acceptable but also pleasing to you. Holy Spirit, would you come and awaken our souls today? We are You revive us, renew us, provoke us, show us how great you are and how great the mission is you call us to join the world. In Jesus' name, Amen. So we're reading Jonah 4, verses 1 to 11. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. This is referring to what God has done, which is actually what he has not done. He's not visited destruction and judgment upon the city of Nineveh. Jonah thought that was wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were a generous, you were a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger and abandoning in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. But the Lord replied, Is it right for you to be angry? Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. There he made himself a shelter, sat in its shade, and waited to see what would happen in the city. Then the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it grow up over Jonah to give shade for his head, to ease his discomfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind, and the sun blazed on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. He wanted to die, and he said, It would be better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, 
Is it right for you to be angry with the flint? It is, he said. But I'm so angry, I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, You have been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or made it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals? This is the word of the Lord. I love to walk. I'm a walker. I get that from my English mother. English people are famously walkers. This time of year, though, it's hard to walk, right? There's ice and snow. The weather is miserable. I walked Lily to her sleepover Friday night, and I almost wiped out three times. A friendly neighbor said, you should walk in the street on the sidewalk. It's safer actually to walk in the street, so we did. But, you know, even in the winter, and especially when it gets warmer out, walking gives me a real sense of peace. Maybe you can relate to that. Clearly our bodies are designed for walking, and it creates a kind of rhythm when we walk. It slows us down, it helps us to notice the world around us, and it puts us in the path of people face-to-face, right? You look at people when you walk past them, or you have the opportunity to do so anyway, in a way that you can't possibly look at them if you're driving a car. You ever stand as a pedestrian and try to cross a traffic light and look at people in their cars? It's like they're in this kind of weird bubble. They don't even conceive that someone could be looking at them, and the expressions face or not always gentle and kind. <laughs> but walking isn't just good for our bodies. I think it's good for our souls, too. I know there have been times when I've struggled to pray, and when I get up, I leave the house, and even just walk around the block, it's like it clears my head. It clears my mind of those things that are preoccupying me, and I can return, whether I pray while I'm walking, which is something that if you haven't tried, I'd encourage you to try. Or whether I return to my house and then pray, it really helps me to walk. When we left Jonah last week, he was walking through the city of Nineveh. He was preaching his wee little sermon. <clears throat> and I imagine that he was he was walking something like this. He was sort of walking quickly and furtively, not making eye contact with people, and he's kind of mumbling in his little sermon, 40 more days, then it will be overturned. Looking up, 40 more days, then it will be overturned. Getting it over, getting it done, you know what it's like. Some tasks you just want to end fast. That's how Jonah was walking through the internet, as I imagined it. And there's a lot to imagine in that part of the story. To tell you the truth, I'm fascinated by what Jonah experienced as he went through Nineveh, as he walked through that city that he hated. The amazing thing that happens is that even though he was not enthusiastic about the job he had to do, he does it well. 
or at least he accomplishes the purpose that God gave him. The Ninevites turn from their evil ways. But now there's a new problem because Jonah is angry. That's where we pick up the story today. Why would Jonah be angry? Can you think about any kind of performance, any kind of task that you've been given in the past and if it goes this well, if it is this successful, why on earth would you be angry and upset? Well, I think it's because Jonah has a kind of a disease. It's a disease that most religious people have. And this final chapter of the book, we're going to see the effects of that disease. And you'll probably see some of these symptoms in your own life, too. Jonah's disease has two main components. First of all, Jonah is an idolater. If you think back to Jonah's experience in the belly of the fish, part of his prayer to God in verse 8 of chapter 2, he mentioned that those who cling to worthless idols forfeit the grace that could be theirs. Jonah's idol is that he loves his racial identity. You remember the first thing he said to the sailors in that crazy storm when they were asking him, who are you, where are you from, what's going on? He said, I am a Hebrew. He loves that he is part of God's chosen people. And he loves that it doesn't include a whole ton of other people, but it includes him. He loves that he's a leader among those people. He loves his status as a prophet in an important nation that God has chosen of all the nations of the world. And the Ninevites threaten that, so Jonah hates them. They threaten to take from him what he loves. Let me review for you what idolatry is, because you may have a problem seeing it in Jonah. After all, it's not like he's bowing down to statues. The first thing about idolatry is that it takes place when you try to build your identity on something besides God. We all have an identity, right? Something that defines us. Think of it as like an internal dialogue where you tell yourself, I have worth because of this, this, and this. I have worth because I'm a good parent, because I'm good at my job, because I'm a good student, because I'm a good person. I help people, I'm kind to people, I'm there for my friends, my family. Um, I'm any number of things. These are the things that make up your identity. For me, when I was in high school, I remember starting to come into my own sense of an identity apart from my parents. And I remember, first of all, I gained worth from getting good grades. So I worked at that. That, that seemed to be something that I could derive a sense of identity from. And then I, I began to realize that it was important to be cool if I wanted a girlfriend. So that became kind of a secondary goal. And I started to uh, have my genes tapered so that they rubbed all the hair off the backs of my calves. Is <laughs> <laughs> that too much information? <laughs> I would go get to Kensington Market on the weekends and I would buy vintage clothing. And I, I thought I was pretty worthwhile because I wore cool clothing. And that is the cool music. And then a few years later I had children, and my children had one clear message for me, and that was that there's nothing cool about me. 
especially my music, was the farthest thing from cool in the universe. All of us have built a sense of identity on different things, and they're, they're good things. But when you build your identity on anything other than what God gives you, his love, how God feels about you, how he sees you, you are practicing idolatry. And when your identity is built on anything other than God, you will find that you become fearful and you become angry. And this comes out in unforgiveness towards people who have hurt you or who have threatened you in one way or another. It also comes out in self-pity. You think, why is it that people don't recognize how worthwhile I am? All the good things about me. My kids don't realize how much I sacrifice for them. Why don't they let me play my music once in a while? That would be nice. We see all of these characteristics in Jonah. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard says that this is the very essence of sin. If you struggle to wrap your head around the word sin, think of it this way. Sin is basing your self-identity on anything other than your identity with God. The second thing about idolatry is it happens when you want something more than you want God. It's when I find more happiness in being successful in school, in my career, than I find in knowing God. More delight in getting money and getting things. More pleasure in the dream of a romantic relationship or being happily married. Jonah finds more delight in the prosperity of Israel and the destruction of her enemies than he does in knowing and delighting in God. Think about it this way. What are, you, what are you most afraid of losing in your life right now? You may not even be altogether conscious of it. What do you dream about having more of in your life? What do you long for? What drives you to put in effort what is the one thing you cannot imagine living without? That if it was taken out of your life, your life wouldn't be worth living at all, perhaps. The symptoms of the disease of idolatry are what you see in Jonah's life. Glory and anger and unforgiveness. Now, these emotions are actually helpful. In a way, they're precious because they're an imitation when we feel them, to look into our own hearts. You can think of them as smoke from a fire that you can then follow to. Now, I don't like when there's smoke in my house, when someone burns something, and the fire alarm goes off, but the upside of having smoke in your house is that it can let you know that there's a problem. Right? Clearly, this house is a fire, something wrong. And it can lead you to put out that fire before it burns your whole house down. So we can be grateful for these emotions that crop up. We can pay attention to them. When we get angry, what are we angry about? It's an invitation to examine our hearts, to take that to God, to say, Lord, why am I so angry with this thing? Show me where my heart is. It's not with you, or I wouldn't have this thing. 
Idols are things we derive pleasure from more than from God. Things we seek refuge in more than we seek the Lord. So part one of Jonah's disease is that he is an idolater. Part two is that he's ignorant. Jonah is ignorant of the grace that God has extended to him. In verse 2, Jonah says to God, I knew you were a God who was compassionate. And it's a complaint that he's doing. Now, if Jonah's going to bring up the compassion of God, he should probably not be resentful of it. Rather, he should be grateful. Because which character in this whole story we've been reading, the book of Jonah, has received the most grace by far? It's Jonah, right? But Jonah is resentful because he doesn't actually see himself in the category of those who even need grace. If you see yourself as basically a worthy person, then the next step is to assume that God owes you things. And so grace will be shocking to you because you don't think you need it. And generosity is something that will not come naturally. And you're also going to be resentful when God seems to be blessing other people in ways you may think they don't deserve. And when God commands you to be generous with others, you're going to resist it. Because you're thinking, why would I do that, God? I've I've earned this money. I deserve it. It's mine. But everything changes when you see yourself as a recipient of God's great grace then his compassion becomes his most precious attribute. And you, in turn, can reflect his compassion towards others. So which is truer of you, would you say? When you see God bless someone that you view as unworthy and with a blessing that you'd like to have, how do you react Are you like, God, why them? Why do they get that blessing? Why are they getting married and not me? Why did they get that recognition at work? Why did they get that great grave? Why did they get that reward, experience that success? As you ask those questions and as you offer up that complaint, you're demonstrating how out of touch you truly are with grace. The person who understands God's amazing grace towards them is surprised by it and also loves to see other people receive it. If you are not forgiving with people around you in your life, and let's face it, this is something all of us struggle with, it's probably rooted in a lack of understanding about grace. Because when you start to see yourself as a sinner, think Think of John Newton's amazing hymn, Amazing Grace. How does it start off? How does John Newton refer to himself? As a wretch. And that's, that's not him beating up on himself. That's not poor self-esteem. That's him seeing himself in the light of God's goodness and God's holiness. And it's the starting point for receiving the grace that that amazing hymn leads us into. When you see yourself as a sinner, first against God and then against other people in your life, 
you will find that your heart begins to soften and you become more forgiving in ways that you hadn't been able to be up to that point. When you recognize that you are an undeserving person to whom God has given his grace and you have received that great grace, giving a little grace to your spouse, to your friend, is going to come more easily. Now, I'm not saying it is easy. Forgiveness never is. But I'm saying this is where it starts. Honestly, I think Jonah probably saw his sin and the sin of the Ninevites in two completely separate categories. The Ninevites, as he saw them, well, they worshipped idols. They were murderers. They were cruel. They skinned people alive. You think back to the first week of our series on Jonah. The atrocities committed by the empire, the Assyrian empire. Unbelievable. Evil. And Jonah would have said, well, I didn't do any of that. I did nothing like that. But what had Jonah done? He had said no directly to God. Is there any sin greater than that? Think of the original sin, the one that ruined our relationship with God, that brought all the harmony that God created the world to enjoy and destroyed it. It was simply saying no to God. It was eating the fruit of a forbidden tree. The tree itself wasn't bad. It was saying no to God that was the problem. It was the rebellion against God which amounted to blasphemy. And that sin led to all pain and suffering and corruption that came into the world. And that's a sin that all of you, religious people, most of you, have committed. I know I have. You may not have lived an obviously immoral life, but in some ways your sin is worse. Many people who do lead what we might call immoral lives do it out of ignorance, largely. But what about us? We knew there was a God, and we just defied him. Jonah's sin was blasphemy of the highest order, but Jonah doesn't see that. And so he does not receive the grace that God longs for him to have. A spirit of unforgiveness and a lack of generosity are indicators that you are out of touch with God's grace in your own life. So that's the disease that Jonah is suffering from, idolatry and ignorance. And all of this, all of this comes after Jonah has agreed to do God's will. Right? He did that last week. By this point in the story, Jonah is no longer openly defiant of God. He's doing the job that God asked him to do. And this is the picture, I think, of most religious people. You may not be directly defying God, but that doesn't mean you have come to delight in God. That doesn't mean that you are extending grace, the grace that God has given to you and wants you to pass on. Delight in God and a forgiving heart, a godlike heart, are things that cannot be produced by fear, by God saying, do this, I am God. They can only be produced by grace, and that's why we have Jesus. By seeing Jesus, 
by seeing Jesus as the one who took your place, as the one who was thrown off the ship, as the one who was in the belly of the fish for three days, in Sheol, in hell. He went there for you. He took the penalty in your place. He laid down his life for you. As you are captivated by that image of God's grace and love in Jesus Christ, you will find your heart changes. You will find your blood flows. God wants to work through you. How are you blocking that? So what does Jonah do here? Well, he leaves the city. He goes outside of it, sits down, and waits. What he's hoping for is that the Ninevites will repent of their repentance. He's hoping that the Ninevites will fail, will fall, will revert to their former ways. He's hoping for fireworks, fire and brimstone, lightning bolts. He's hoping God will still destroy them after all. Nothing would have made him feel better, so he thought. And as Jonah waits for this, God provides a plant, a leafy plant, to give him shade. But the next day, God takes away the plant. And Jonah, who, let's face it, is a bit of a drama queen, right? Jonah says he wants to die. But God asks him, and God's grace in asking these questions in this final chapter of the book is, is amazing to me. God asks him, Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? And Jonah says, it is, yes, absolutely. In fact, I'm so angry I wish I was dead. Now, if I was Jonah's counselor at this point and he was telling me this story, honestly, I think I'd be tempted to laugh. Then I would notice that Jonah was deadly serious about it and i remember my pastoral counseling courses and I'd say, wow, Jonah, it sounds like this plant was really important to you. This is the second time that God has asked Jonah if he has a right to be angry. The first time was in verse 4, and Jonah had no response. But this time he explodes back and he says, God, you're right, absolutely I've got a right to be angry. We read in Psalm 115 that one of the effects of idolatry is blindness. And Jonah was blind to the plant this everyday thing that he took for granted. He was blind to the plant being a source of God's grace to him. And Jonah was deaf as well. God asked him questions, questions designed to bring him back. Jonah didn't hear them. God was trying to stir his conscience, awaken him to his sin, the distance he was at, not just from Nineveh, but also from God himself. Jonah wasn't listening. God says, you're really upset about a plant. But Jonah, Nineveh is filled with people, people just like you. In fact, 120,000 people who don't even know their right hand from their left hand. And most, most scholars agree that here the story is referring to the children of the city of Nineveh. So God's saying, Jonah, how can you look at such a massive destruction of life, of sinful people, yes, but people just like you, and even children, children who are as precious to me as your children, how can you look on all that with no emotion? 
And so how does the book of Jonah end? How does Jonah answer God? What does the next verse say? There is no next verse. That's it. It ends with a cliffhanger. It ends with a question because the book of Jonah poses this great question to religious people like the prophet. It asks, do you care? Do you care more for people who are lost and perishing than you do about your own petty preoccupations, about the plant that was giving you shade but that now is gone, about the little week-in and week-out things that are trouble, yes, But on the scale of eternity, are they really trouble? Do you care more about your stuff, about your possessions, about your money, than you care about the people that God has asked you to love and asked you to go to? It's a question God puts not just to Jonah, but to all of us. What do you care most about? Now, for Jonah, the Ninevites were not even really people. They were a concept. They were a big, evil enemy city. And I think that's why God points out the 120,000 children. God wanted to make it really clear to Jonah that he thought of them as his people. Do you know there are somewhere around 2.5 billion people in our world who have yet to hear the gospel, who have yet to hear about Jesus? These are people just like you, made in the image of God like you. People who experience pain, sadness, and fear just like you. Who love their children just like you. How could we not care? How could we not weep? Why do we have so much passion for things that don't really matter at all? And so little passion for the things that truly do. I'm not sure if you noticed this as we've been reading the book of Jonah. I've encouraged you to read it on your own. I hope you've had a chance to do that. One of the best things about Jonah is this this short book. It's packed with so much, but you can read it in one sitting. Throughout the book of Jonah, the word great is repeated over and over. God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, that great city. He sends a great storm. There's a great fish that swallows up Jonah. And then he sends him back to Jonah, that great city again. And then in the final verse of this book, he says, should I not be concerned? Should I not have compassion on Nineveh, that great city? The whole point of that repetition of greatness is to show you not the greatness of any of these things, but rather the greatness of God and of God's mission, the mission he's inviting you to take part in. Nina's wickedness is great, but God's grace is so much greater. Jonah's hatred of the Ninevites is great, but God's compassion for them is much greater. Have you felt the greatness of God's mission? The weightiness of it? Do you long to be used by God 
so that his love can go out into the world. So that the blockages, the pain, the suffering, the heartache of the world can find its answer in Jesus. My grandparents used to tell me a story about a woman named Lottie Moon. She was an American missionary to China. My grandparents never met her, but she was famous. She went to China as a single woman. She wanted to be married, but she knew that God had called her to go to China and to not be married. And it wasn't easy for her. In her biography, she writes, I pray that no missionary will ever be as lonely as I have been. She was devoted to China. When most missionaries fled after the Japanese invaded China at the end of the 19th century, she stayed. And she struggled for years to get her message across, to learn the language, understand the culture, build relationships. And a turning point came one day when the pastor of the tiny church that she was involved with in the village where she lived, the Chinese pastor was taken prisoner and he was beaten. And he was beaten almost to death. And when she found out it was going on, she rushed to where they were holding him and she stood between him, her friend, the pastor, and the guard who was beating him so violently. The guard screamed at her and said, I'm going to kill you, get out of my way, I have a job to do. But she wouldn't move. And witnesses say that this incredible, peaceful look came over her face. A gentle smile in the face of such violence. And the guard didn't know what to do. He didn't know what to do, and he walked away in the end. And so she rushed, rushed the pastor to a nearby city, to a hospital, and helped care for him for a couple of months as he recovered. And when they returned later to her town, this tiny church that she'd left behind had multiplied. It had grown beyond what she could have imagined. Because the people had been overwhelmed that this strange little white woman would be willing to give her life for this Chinese man, would be willing to put herself in danger, to stand between him and this evil that was being perpetrated. And this glimpse of the gospel that she gave them opened their hearts to the message about the sacrifice of Jesus who has given everything for us. A few years later, in 1911, a famine swept through the part of China where she lived. And again, she refused to leave. She had ample opportunity to leave. A lot of missionaries did leave. They had gunboats escort them out of the interior. But not Lottie Moon. She wrote countless letters back home, begging people to send money to send food, to send whatever they could to help their brothers and sisters in China. She literally gave away her own food to the point where she became malnourished, got sick, and died. And the woman who was with her as she passed away said that on her, deaths, on her deathbed, she recited the names of all of 
those who were part of her church, her friends, her family. And then she got to the last name and she said, and now I'm going to see Jesus. And she died. I think that story is meaningful for me, especially because my great-grandfather died the same year that Lottie Moon did of cholera. When we see sacrifice like that, commitment like that, love like that, it affects us. It changes us. We see that in Christ. And Christ sees us outside the city like Jonah was. And he's inviting us to leave that place of anger, that place of resentment, that place of self-righteousness. He says, first of all, you don't need to be there anymore because in Jesus, all of your self-righteousness is forgiven. And you are led away from that self-interest, that self-preoccupation, into the freedom that the Holy Spirit gives you to love others, to embrace others, to let go of your idols, those things you think give meaning to your life, and to say, God, I want you to flow through me. Whatever blockage there has been, forgive me for that. So today, I want to ask two questions. I want to end this sermon series the way the book of Jonah ends, with a question in two parts. How in your life right now are you experiencing a blockage to what God wants to do through you? Where is the obstruction? Where is the unforgiveness in your own life? Because you can't just compartmentalize that and leave that to one side and expect God to do through you, with you, within you all that he wants to do, the ways that he longs to love you, to receive you, to fill you up with his goodness. So that's the first part of the question. The second part is, and I want to come back to the walking. How are we How are you as an individual, but even more, I want to ask, how are we as a church being called by God to walk into the city? How have we disobeyed God and stayed on a hill outside of the city, even unconsciously, and looked down on those other people? And how now is God inviting us to walk into the city of Guelph? Maybe literally. As I was preaching this sermon at the 9 a.m. service, I had a vision of all of us on a prayer walk, leaving this building, filing out the front door, walking down Devere Drive, down College, not down the Hanlon, that's illegal, (laughs) down Edinburgh, Praying and walking, walking and praying, noticing things that we've never noticed before. Greeting people, walking into our neighborhoods, being present 
refusing to let the busyness of our lives get in the way of what God wants to do through us. Are we open to that? Are we open to God saying, here's a new way I'm calling you to be committed to reaching the city of Guelph because of my great compassion and love for it. God asks, should I not have compassion on this great city? How will we answer him? Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you are a God of grace. We thank you that your grace comes in little things like plants that give us shade. A friend sending us a text message of encouragement. All the ways you provide for our needs. And it comes to us, your grace comes to us in the big things. None bigger, none greater than your giving of yourself in your son Jesus and providing the Holy Spirit so that we could be the church so that all that we long for in relationship to one another that comes from our relationship with you can be made real among us. Your peace, your goodness, your forgiveness, your grace. Lord, we pray more and more that we would be a church that looks like that. We thank you that you want to free us up from all the guilt that we feel today. Maybe that unforgiveness in our hearts, we can't, we can't dislodge it because we feel such guilt about it. It's been so many years of unforgiveness, Lord. Well, you're going to move that boulder. You're going to bring soft, supple responsiveness where before we were cold and felt nothing. Lord, help us to trust you. Help us to receive your forgiveness, real and true. And by your power, Holy Spirit, enable us to forgive others in turn. And then we pray for your guidance. For us individually, as we wrestle with our callings, Help us to not settle for a life where we're asleep in the hold of the ship, a life of consuming Netflix and social media and buying stuff we don't need and lying on the couch. Help us to get up and to walk out in boldness because what you have in store for us is so much better. So we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would prompt us, that you would reassure us, that you would challenge us in that as a church too. As we look ahead to our annual meeting in two weeks, Holy Spirit, we pray that you would hover over that gathering and the work that's gone into it, the plans that we're making for the session meeting this Wednesday night, that you would show us how how are you dislodging us from our comfort, from the place that we have become accustomed to? 
and sending us out. If there's anything that Jonah teaches us that this amazing book shows us, it's that you are on the move. And you demand that we keep up with you. Because where you are going is the best place for us. So show us how we can be obedient, how we can be faithful as a church, Lord. Lord, today we pray for those in our church who are in need. None of this stuff is easy. Forgiveness, being in relationship with one another, caring for people. It requires discipline. It requires... that we bear with one another. And so I pray for those in our congregation who are really struggling right now, who are struggling with sickness. And we think of Carol Atkinson at Guelph General after her heart attack yesterday. We pray for healing for her. I thank you for all the people who were talking about going to see her. I thank you that we are a church of face-to-face relationships. I pray that no one would ever come here and be anonymous Lord, I pray for those who are feeling loneliness right now in their lives that may be almost unbearable. You call us to be a city on a hill, your church. May we be a place that lonely people come to receive friendship. So show us, Lord, who you have in mind for us to reach out to. I pray for those struggling with broken relationships, maybe... maybe Your marriage right now feels like it's beyond the point of no return. Maybe you have fallen out with a dear friend or your child or your parent. There is brokenness in those relationships that you wonder if it could ever be repaired. God, open our eyes to the ways you want to change our hearts but also our actions. Would you fill us with the faith that you can heal anyone, you can do anything? And give us an excitement at that, at that prospect. You are God who brings the most amazing changes into our lives. And so we pray for that in our families and in our church and in our city. Lord, we pray today and thank you for the good news that Kevin and Jane Ann had their baby. We pray for Rachel as she grows up. I think for those in our congregation who are pregnant today, I pray for Lindsay and for Ben as they await the arrival of their twins. I pray for Louise and for Jeff. I think it's just two months now. Lord, would you watch over these little ones growing in their mother's wombs and for all anyone else who I don't know about who's pregnant. Lord, we pray for the babies in our church as well. We pray for Lona and Hillary and little Ian. We pray for Bass and Lydia, little Sonia. Pray for Tito and Phyllis and little Malika, who's to be baptized next month. Lord, we thank you that you bless us as a family these ways. Lord, we pray for those who are struggling with loss in their lives. Even as there are new things, there is birth, there is death, and there is grief. We pray that you would comfort those who are mourning the loss of someone close to them or the loss 
of something precious to them, a job, a hope, the loss of something significant in their lives. Lord, would you bring your comfort? Would you restore hope? Lord, we thank you today for the ways that we are partnering with you in mission in the city of Guelph and around the world, actually. We thank you that we are part of this amazing worldwide church. We pray for unity in it, and we pray also for the partnership that we have with Dunamis Canada today. We pray for Patty Tan, her role as administrator. We pray uh, for Barb and Les Ferrier as they step back from some leadership there. We pray that you would bless Dunamis. Lord, may your kingdom come. May your will be done here in the city of Guelph. And to the ends of the earth, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.